So we're in a series right now, uh, and uh, we're continuing in the book of Romans. We've almost been in Romans for a year. And uh, one of the things that we do, if you've not been around Grace, is we teach you the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because we believe that's the best way for you to get to know what's in the Bible, and the Bible is the best way for you to know God. And so we're in a series right now called Rescued, and uh, we're looking at what it means for us to walk as if we have been rescued by God. And we have been talking uh, through different topics, and today we turn to one of my favorites, which is um, Romans chapter 12. We're only going to look in Romans at two verses, one and two today. And uh, we're going to look at a, a bunch of scriptures that are some of my favorite scriptures that, honestly, I used many of these passages of the scripture to shape my formative first steps towards Jesus. And there were Christians that were speaking these things to my life, and I took hold of them, and God began to miraculously change my heart, my mind, my attitude, and my outlook, okay? And for some of us today, we're in a place, and we talked about this last week, we're in a place where we may see the world just the way that it is, or as Christians, we're supposed to see with eyes of faith, right? The Bible teaches us that we don't fix our eyes on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen lasts forever. And I said, we want to be people who invest in things that endure, that last forever, not just something that comes and goes real quick in our life. But the challenge for us as we dive into today's message is the idea that for some of us, it's really hard to see with eyes of faith. And the reason for that is because we have old programming that we acquired somewhere in our history, whether it was when we were children from our parents or it was something terribly abusive that happened to us or it was just through a series of bad choices we made in our own life. But we acquired some tapes and we acquired some programming inside our heads that when we say or I say something like, you need to look at the world with an eyes of faith, believe that God is at work in the world, it's hard for you because you discount statements like that. For example, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you're a beautiful person, and immediately your mind goes to all the reasons why if they really knew who you were, they wouldn't, you, they wouldn't think that you're a beautiful person. There are things inside of us that are constantly discounting truths that come our way because we were shaped at one point to believe these things. I believe, and I think it's solid, that everything that we are today is a product of previous learning. Everything that we are today is a product of previous learning. So the good news about that, especially if you're in the room right now and you're like, I can't get over this. I'm never going to get past that. It's never going to change. I can't make a difference. If you're in that place right now, this should be encouraging to you, right? Everything that you've learned in the past, you can unlearn right now. And you can relearn something new, which means you can be different in the future. That God has something for you that you can actually acquire. God changed my entire life with, this, with what we're going to talk about today, and I hope it's helpful for you. So let's go ahead and take a look at the scriptures, and we're going to pull this right from the Bible, Romans chapter 1, or rather 12, verses 1 and 2. We'll read it, and then we'll go back over it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, well, let's dive into verse one and take a look at this. 
He says, therefore, I urge you. When Paul comes, he's talking to brothers and sisters, so that's Christians, Christians in Rome. He's basically saying, hey, guys, listen, I have a kind of urgency about what I'm about to talk to you about. This is important. If you're going to be the person that God wants you to be, you need to realize some things. You need to live in a very specific way, and he shows us right here. Therefore, I urgently plead with you, Christians, in view of God's mercy. Let's pause right there. Well, let's read it all. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says, if I'm going to live a life that is pleasing to God, it's going to be in view of God's mercy. What does that mean? He means basically this. He means in light of everything that God has done for you, all the mercy he's given to you, all the grace that he's given to you, all the blessing that he's given to you, all the goodness, the patience, the gentleness, the kindness, all of these things that God has done for you. With this in mind, I want you to do some other things. But notice that he starts like this. With this in mind, God has always been good to you. If you want to change your life spiritually, you have to begin with trust in the Lord. You have to begin with not a God that maybe is broken tape in your head, right? That is just condemning and constantly trying to pick reasons to destroy you. That's not what we see in the Bible. That is not what we see in the Old Testament, and it's not what we see in the New Testament. I'm not saying that hard things won't happen to you. They will happen to you. But God, on the other side of that, is in the view of his mercy, we're supposed to do something. In view of all the wonderful things that he's done for you, that merits a response. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that in view of everything that he's done for you, the wonderful things, this merits a response. And what is the response? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So I guess part of this, you know, if you were to read this in the first century um, or hear Paul say this in the first century, this would be weird for you, okay? This wouldn't make a lot of sense. It makes sense to us. I mean, look at the first part of it, right? Um, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So when he uses the phrase bodies, I know that that's kind of a little bit specific. Is he specifically talking about your physicality? Um, He's talking about more than your physicality, but not less than your physicality. He's saying that, yes, your body actually needs, it's a, it's a temple, right? It's something that it needs to be offered to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So if we just boil this down to the most basic thing, don't do with your bodies things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Because it won't bring blessing, it'll actually bring curse, and we'll talk about that in a little while. I urge you, Christians, in view of all the wonderful things that God has done for you, Offer your bodies, this is really, the, but, but the bigger picture here is the totality of who you are, all that I am. Offer all that you are as a living sacrifice. So this is weird. I mean, anybody in the first century who would be listening to this would go, Paul, sacrifices don't live. That's the nature of a sacrifice because they were steeped in Old Testament um, Judaism and Mosaic law. And so anybody who sacrificed something in the Old Testament didn't walk away with something living. They killed that animal. That animal died. I mean, you don't have a living sacrifice. So the words he uses here are strange to them. So the idea of a living sacrifice, what does he mean? Well, let's go back first to the concept of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, we think that maybe like the, the, the Mosaic law was the beginning of sacrifice. It wasn't. It all starts back in the Garden of Eden between these two people, Adam and Eve. And by the way, if you're new at church or new to God or new to this whole thing, we actually do believe that Adam and Eve were original people, not just some story that was made up. This were, these were human beings, the first two human beings in the world. 
So God creates Adam and Eve and he creates a world of human flourishing. Every single time Adam looked at Eve, he saw a woman who did everything she could for him and was perfectly godly towards him. And every time Eve looked at Adam, she saw a man who did everything that he could for her and was perfectly godly towards them. They were naked. They were not ashamed. They walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. There was intimacy, there was unity, and there was oneness in their relationship until, until they believed a lie. And I want you to understand that this lie at the very beginning is a lie that still exists today and is constantly dominating people and culture. And it's one very basic lie. You can find your happiness outside of God. You can find your happiness outside of God. So when they decided to act on that moment, all of a sudden something enters into the world that's completely different than anything they'd experienced before. Adam looks at her and he sees her nakedness and he's ashamed and he looks away. Now he's afraid of her. Now she looks at him and she goes, I don't trust you anymore. And they hide in the garden from themselves and from God. And God comes looking for them. And what happens? God does something that had never happened in their experience before. He takes the life of the first animal. Now, if you're an animal lover, like I'm an animal lover, you hate that. And it was designed to be hated. It was not designed to be, this is a glorious, beautiful thing. In their shame, in order for them to walk with each other again, God takes a life. And imagine what it was like to experience the death of an animal for the first time when you've never seen or heard or even thought about something like that before. God kills this animal. We don't know what animal it was, but he kills this animal and he puts the skins on them to cover over their nakedness and shame. And this would be the foreshadowing of what would take place in the Old Testament law where every Jewish person would have to come after sinning and say, I will bring my sacrifice. And then the priest would take this sacrifice and they would take that lamb and he had to be spotless, perfect. It had to be all white without or all black, had no spots or anything on it. They were very selective about what sacrifice was acceptable. And so what would happen is the priest would cut that, that thing's throat. He would take the, I'm not trying to be gratuitous here, but he would take his hands and he would bathe his hands in there and he would put it before the family and he would put it before Israel and he would say, look, behold, of what your sin has done. And so if you find that grotesque, that was exactly the point. He was saying, look, because your wickedness has done something terrible, it's cost the life of something. So all the way from the very beginning of the Bible, all the way to the very end, life has always been restored to God through death. It's always been restored to God through death. There's always been a death necessary. And so he says, he says, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, Old Testament sacrifices died. We'll talk about that more in a second. But the first part of this is offer your bodies, offer yourselves. A big piece of our relationship with God is that God has done all of these incredible and amazing things for us. I mean, like he's genuinely loved you even when you did not love him. I'm a Christian today because God came into my God-hating heart and said, I choose you. Because I had a Christian background? No. I didn't grow up in a Christian family, but he said, I choose you, just like he chose many of you, right? And in that situation, there is a response that we have, and that is, as you have done good to me, Father, I want to do good to you. So what happens is God does this thing where he creates this sacrifice system, right? But in order for a lamb to be acceptable, because you couldn't bring any sacrifice, it had to be pure. And this was exactly what was necessary for Jesus to be able to die on a cross for our sins, he was chosen as well by the Father. And he was sent into the world to live a sinless life. That sinless life that he lived is now applied to you and me. So when the Father, get this, because this is a change your heart kind of thing. 
If you can get this in your heart right now, this will change big things in your life. All right, this is it. When you think about God, many of us think, how disappointed is he in me? I know he wants me to do better. I know I'm not what he wants me to be. But you don't understand that if you really are a follower of Jesus, then this spotless lamb of God, Jesus, who was placed on a cross for our sins, died in our place, that blood of Jesus now covers us. The great priest, Jesus, takes that blood and says, Father, look, my blood is covering his life, her life. And so when the father looks down from heaven, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees a sanctified, purified person because of Jesus. Not because we tried to build a staircase to heaven that would ultimately, great song, terrible theology, right? But, but, but it's, one of, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you cannot build a staircase to heaven, a stairway to heaven, right? That's not how it works. But Jesus made one for you, and it was through him. And this is what you need to hear. That means that as we offer ourselves to him, we already are holy and pleasing to God. Ladies, that voice inside your head that is constantly, constantly making you anxious that you're not enough, in yourself, you are not enough. But through Christ, you are pleasing in his sight. Guys, the drivenness sometimes to constantly be more, you are already pleasing in his sight. He says, that's my guy. So if you start all of your interactions with God from that perspective, that, we, that in our own selves, we're not worthy. That's not, that's not possible because I'm spotted. Can I tell you that? Like I'm spotted. I'm, I'm messed up. I messed up this week. I'm just going to be really transparent with you. Be like, I'm not coming back after this. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, I just, like my son, one of my sons, I just, I had a bad interaction with him. He was making a choice that I didn't like. I thought it was bad. It was a lot like cataclysmic. It was just a choice. I'm like, I don't like the choice that you're making. And he's like, well, big surprise. You know, it was just one of those, it's just, it was just like one of, one of, it was like, it was like one of those situations, you know? And, and I was running late for a Jesus meeting. And so, so I just yelled at him and I just slammed the door and walked out. And as soon as I walked out, the Holy Spirit was like, is that the kind of, is that the kind of dad you want to be? I'm like, no. You know, <laughs> you know it, you're God, you already know that, you know? And, and, so, and so immediately I texted him while I was driving down the road, which you shouldn't do. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm texting him, I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry that I, I said that. I just, I, you know, I was just frustrated. I get, I get afraid sometimes, you know? And then when I get afraid, sometimes I get mad. And he says, it's fine, it's no big deal. And I said, it actually isn't fine and it is a big deal and I'm working on it. And I know because I love my son, that I don't want my spottedness to corrupt our relationship. I, I, don't, I don't want my brokenness to mess up our relationship. And Paul's making that same argument right now. He's like, offer yourselves. And, and the reason why, even though God looks at us already and says we're pleasing, the reason why we do something in response to him, we offer ourselves to him, is because, <laughs> it's because in the same way, we want to honor him. We want one, our spottedness to corrupt our relationship with God. And the Bible's fundamentally clear. Sin separates us from God. It never separates God from us, us from God. God is always in the background going, I'm, I'm with you still. But sometimes we're just going to blow it. So how do we walk in that spotless way? How do I do that? Verse 2. Verse 2 says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind 
then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, so these two things are placed in juxtaposition of each other. Don't conform, be transformed. So the idea of conforming here in the Bible is taking yourself and wrapping yourself around something, right? So you can conform. I have friends that actually travel in their jobs here um, at this church. They've got jobs that make them travel around the country. And I remember my father even telling me about this in his later years, how he regretted it. But he spent a lot of time on the road. And you know what? If you have to earn a living that way, you have to earn a living that way. It's just how it works. You provide for your family. That's what you do. I get it. Totally. But the hard thing about that is when you're pulled away from your family, you're pulled away from your church, and you're pulled away from that system that ultimately helps you take your next step toward Jesus, and you're around people who have a completely different morality, our tendency sometimes is to conform, to wrap ourselves around the people that are around us. Instead of being transformed, we just conform, right? And so he's like, listen, your your job is not to conform, but it is to transform. It is to be lifted up and lifted out. You're not to be the person who just conforms to that, but to be transformed. And there's a picture of this in the Bible. It's Moses. He's like, you've got two paths in front of you. You can conform and just go back to the old ways, or you can be transformed and walk in a new way. And I'm here to tell you right now, you can walk in a new way. The Bible, when when Christians were talked about in the early church, their lives became so different when they introduced a relationship to Jesus to them that the only way the early writers could put words around it to describe the life change was they are new creations in Christ. It's almost as if God had recreated the person. And I know exactly what that's like. There was a point that I was one mic and then I was another mic. And many of you have that same kind of testimony. You know it because God transforms us. We choose the road of blessing instead of the road of curses. And Moses is standing before Israel. They've left Egypt, after 400 years of slavery, and believe it or not, they, they're frustrated by, by having to wander around the desert, and they're asking questions like, should we go back? Should we just conform? Should we go back to slavery? Should we go back to just being dominated by Egypt? But it was better, because we at least had food at night. We're not really sure what's going on, even though God was dropping food from heaven. Should we conform? This is what he says. Deuteronomy 30, 19. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. I mean, he makes it as clear as possible. I think it's interesting. So let's talk about curses for a second because Christians get really weird about things like this, okay? Curses, woo, scary. All right, so, so like, like what's, what's ha- this is not magic that we're talking about. This is not Harry Potter, you know, right? Like, like he's not gonna curse you and then there's gonna be this curse that runs through your family. He's talking about modeling, which is way more powerful than a curse in the traditional sense. Modeling, you, you, have you ever wondered? I mean, like why do kids that grow up in alcoholic families grow up oftentimes, more often than not, to be alcoholics? Because they've watched, they watched their parents, they watched their parents react, and every time they got stressed, they're like, I'm gonna take a drink, and they've just felt a little bit better. And they're like, oh, okay, that's how you do that when you're four, you're five, you're six, you're seven, you're eight, you're nine, and then you're 16, you're 65, and you pass it on to the next generation. It is a curse running through your family. But it's just the modeling that you've done. Have you ever noticed that guys who grew up in angry families have the tendency to be angry as well? Why is that? Because they learned along the way that the way you deal with conflict is not through creativity and, and, and conversation, but through power and dominance. There's only, and I feel this in myself at times, I know what it's like to be pushing, literally pushing the corner by my dad, you know, shaking his fist at me and, and feeling like I don't have any choices here. And it's awful. And so your tendency is when someone pushes against you, you want to push back against them. No. 
It's just modeling. It's just learning. It's just old tapes and old programming that someone dropped inside your brain at one time. You don't have to be that person, but some of us have never stopped and asked ourselves, why do I continue to be this person? Because God has set before me life and death, blessing or curses. Which am I going to choose? I remember the very first time I sat down with a bunch of Christians at a table for dinner. And I remember the dad praying and it was spooky to me and kind of weird, but it was also kind of beautiful. And I remember just sitting at the table while they talked and laughed and joked, they're actually going to be here in two weeks at church. And I remember thinking, when's the arguing going to start? And I just realized it's not. And it was me that was all twisted up. I thought it was just normal. Because when you grow up in these kind of environments, you habituate to them. You're used to alcoholics and you're used to whatever it is that you grow up with. Like you just become accustomed to it. You're used to people yelling. And I just sat there and I thought, oh God, not God, God, just go God. Like I, I'm the one that screwed up here. And this is beautiful. And at that moment, I started to see a different type of modeling that could become different for my life. And I wanted it. And I chose blessings instead of curses. And I chose life instead of death. And I started moving in a different direction. Well, how, how do we do this? Well, he's already told us, don't conform. Don't just, ma- just don't mold yourself into whatever everyone else is. Don't just follow the crowd. Instead, you've got to be transformed. So let's look at it again. Verse two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the key to transformation, renewing your mind. But what does it mean? The first thing it means is that you can actually change, but you have to commit yourself to the truth, not what you believe is the truth from previous experience. It's a challenge. I'm gonna show you how to do it in just a second but you have to be committed to the truth. If you're not committed to the truth, it can actually cause more suffering and pain in your life and in the life of someone else. I told you a cringeworthy story last week about the pastor that we tried to hire over at the Briar Patch. I'm gonna tell you another one. Um, So 25 years ago, I was at a church up in Indiana and um, I was talking with a bunch of staff members. We were up at the front desk of the church. A woman walks into the church and she's a larger woman. And, uh, and she comes in and she, she says, I'm here to see pastor so-and-so. And the receptionist, she goes, okay. Um, I, she calls him and she says, so-and-so's here to see you. He's like, I'll be up in like a minute. And, and <laughs> sorry. Um, and it's just, uh, it's so bad. I can't, I feel like I just going to have, have a hot flash just telling you. So, 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 so she says to this woman, when she walks in, she says, I'm here to see so-and-so. And, and she goes, okay, he'll be up in just a minute. She goes, Hey, um, she goes, when, when do you, when do you do? Um, and she goes, I'm not pregnant. And uh, she goes, sure you are. So my immediate response was, <laughs> I, just, I left. And it was awful. We never saw Kristen after that day. But, 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 but instead of going, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Because it, can hap- it can't happen to me. Because like you can be on the labor and delivery table and I'm there. I'll be like, so, so what's going on here? You know, like, like I'm, I'm just, I'm so paralyzed by that. I'm not doing anything like that. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So, so 
you know, she, she doubled down when she didn't need to. She made it worse and made the lady feel terrible because she just was like, she felt awkward. She didn't know what to do in that moment. She should have just said like, that was so dumb of me. I'm so sorry. Of course you're not pregnant. You know, and just like, it was just terrible. Was just, but she was, she doubled down and she made the mistake again. Like she was, she committed herself to an untruth. She knew the truth. She committed herself to an untruth and it hurt someone. That's just a kind of funny version of that. But we can do that with other people in real ways. Like we commit to a lie about them or we commit to a lie about ourselves and we hurt other people around us. And it's not necessary because in 2 Timothy 1.7, one of my favorite verses, this is what it says about you as a Christian. For the spirit God gave us, every single person that becomes a follower of Jesus has the spirit of the Lord. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. That means weak, ineffectual, but he gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Some of your Bibles, when you look in them, they don't have the translation self-discipline. They have the translation sound mind. And I love the fact that they do those two different types because sometimes in the original language, uh, because it's not language that goes word for word, that's not how language translation works. So sometimes it employs two different ideas and these two ideas are the same kind of ideas. So it was dealer's choice. So self-discipline and sound mind. You know what creates a sound mind? A self-disciplined mind. A self-disciplined mind. I mean, I remember when I first became a follower of Jesus, and I was like 17, 18 years old, right? And I was at the Altamont Mall. Yes, it still existed back then. And, uh, and I was at the Altamont Mall, and the Lord was dealing with me because he was dealing with me with every guy who's 17 deals with. He's like, hey, I want you to, I want you to work on your lust. I was like, I know. And, uh, and so, so I'm there, and you know, a thought pops on my head, and I'm trying to figure out how do I deal with this. And so I just did this thing, and I still do this thing today. And I just say, stop. I was just walking through the mall going, stop. Stop. You know, and, it, and here's, here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Because for many of us, we don't ever take hold of our thoughts. We just kind of let them run through our life. And we think to ourselves, well, that's just me thinking. No, it's not. It's you destroying yourself. Because there are some thoughts that you have. They can be thoughts about someone else that's not your wife or husband. They can be thoughts about, you know, just more stuff and more. And you just, you let them run rampant in your brain. And they become bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually they give birth to death in your life. And so sometimes we're, suppo- we're supposed to take hold of these things. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 tells us how to do that. Here it is. It says, for the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Notice the military language here. The, the language here is kind of a violent language. And it's on purpose. And he's very smart. This is Paul, again, writing for the same, same guy's writing in Romans is writing here. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So right here, the weapons we fight with, spiritually weapons that we fight with, they're not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. So the first thing that you need to see here is that you don't fight these thoughts. I'll never lose the weight. I'll never be attractive enough. I'll never be smart enough. I'll never have the opportunities. My, my mom her, her struggle in the church was she was a divorced woman. And this was not a big deal today, but this was a huge deal back then. And she was like, no one accepts me because I'm a divorced woman. That's not true. I knew people who loved my mom in the church, but she had a tape running inside her head. She's like, no, no one's ever going to accept me, right? So you need to realize no matter what you're thinking, you're like, I can't get rid of this. This is just who I am. That's not true. They have divine power, these weapons that we use, not just your strength, God's strength. And if God can resurrect Jesus from the dead, he can make you a better thinker. You cannot have the right life if you have the wrong mind. All right? They have divine power to demolish strongholds. What is a stronghold? 
A stronghold is a place of entrenchment, right? And it's generally thought of in military places where it's like a bunker, you know? It's a bunker where someone has to run up the bunker while you have the machine gun and it tears you apart. It is hard to get through a stronghold, right? Look at what it says right here. He says in verse five, we Christians demolish strongholds and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Let's take a look at it. So we demolish arguments and every pretension. These arguments can be external arguments about the gospel or they can be internal dialogue that we have with ourselves. We demolish arguments and every pretension. Arguments are the rationalizations and the reasons why we continue to have the same old lives with the same broken down thinking. These are the things you say to yourself to continue your old self and every lie that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Here's the reason why you have to challenge these things in your brain. You cannot think every thought that runs in your head. Not every thought is from you. You need to realize the only power that Satan has in the world is just this one power. Just put it out all the movies, take all that out of your head. He has one power. It showed itself in the Garden of Eden. Lies. That's all he can do. But those lies can have massive repercussions. They can, they can wreck your life. So we demolish strongholds, right? We demolish, strong, we demolish strongholds. And those strongholds are built on arguments and lies that set itself up against the knowledge of God. You know that you have something like this in your life when you say to yourself, God can't use me to do that because I'll never be able to. That is a lie, a pretension, and you have arguments, reasons why you continue to believe it. But it is setting itself up against the knowledge of God. If God said that you, he wants to make you whole and your brain says you'll never be whole, then you need to take that captive. That is not true. That's a lie that comes from broken tapes or Satan himself. I don't know why I pointed up. <laughs> Satan himself. We demolish, God's like, really? Uh, so we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought, take captive. So I'm walking through the mall and I go, no. And every once in a while when I get frustrated or I can start thinking things like, man, that person's driving me crazy. Not you, of course, but that person is driving me crazy. I think, stop, that's not helpful. That's not gonna be redemptive. It's not going to change them or me. Stop. And I just stop it. So we have to take captive every thought. Notice all of this is military language. It's very rough. It's very tough language. It's war language. And I want you to realize that when you try to change your heart and your brain, it's a war. But God literally wired you biologically for this war. Just to geek out for a second. Okay. In neuroscience, which, as you know, like that, my, that's, that, was my, that was my background. Um, in neuroscience, your brain, and we've discovered some of this stuff that's been really amazing. And that's this, that, that when you think and when you do repetitive things, your brain is constantly trying to do this one thing, and that is make everything more economical. In other words, trying to make it more easy for the brain to do it. This is the reason why when you're you memorizing your multiplication tables, you're 4 times 3 is 12. 4 times 4 it's 16, right? And you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and it's hard. But now if I were to say, what's four times three, you'd go 12 without, hopefully, without, think, without thinking about it, right? Because it's automatic. It's back here in your subconscious. You're not thinking about it regularly. So what it does is it takes all this stuff and throws it back here. It's called neuroplasticity. And, you're, and, and we, what we've discovered, neuroscientists, neuroscientists have discovered is this, is that as you repetitively do things, stop, 
as you repetitively do things, it literally changes the synaptic pathways in your brain. Changes the way you think. It literally changes the biological structure of your brain, the shape of your brain. And that happens because God created you to constantly be changing. Why? Because to know God requires you to constantly change to be more and more like him forever and ever and ever. And so God made you, even biologically, to do this. And so we demolish strongholds. We don't play with them. We do that by looking at the arguments that we hold on to that set up this pretension, the lie against the knowledge of God. Every time you look at your life and go, that's not true. That's not right. Push it away. And look at what it says here. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient. It's hard. So for example, if I were to say to you, hey, come on a walk with me. And, we say, and, and you said, yeah, let's go on a walk. I didn't take you captive because you cooperated with me. But if I said, come with me, and I grabbed you, and I started dragging you across the stage, you didn't cooperate with me. He's literally saying that your thoughts will not cooperate with you at times. So you got to grab them. You got to say, listen to me, and I'm going to make you be what God wants me, what God wants my, my thought process to be. So sometimes we just have to grab hold of those things. We have to take them captive. And we have divine power to help us do that. It's not just us that does it. But God is in the process always of demolishing strongholds in us, but we have to offer ourselves to him to do that. And so look at what it says here in verse two. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, not before, but then, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. People are constantly asking the question, Pastor Mike, what is God's will for my life? I'm like, I don't know what God's will is for your life. But you have to offer yourself to him. And in offering him, yourself to him, begin that process of renewing your mind. An unrenewed mind cannot see the path of God. So what do we do? We say, God, I want your thoughts in my heart and mind. I want you to show me where the lies are in my heart, where I have limited you, where the knowledge, where there are strongholds inside me. I need you to break these strongholds. And we begin to go to work. It is hard. You have to constantly take them, take charge of them. And when you do this, he says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. These are not three different wills of God. This is one will of God. But for you, it is good. It will please you when you walk in his will and it'll be perfect for your life. It's exactly what you need. So when we take hold of these thoughts and we say stop and we get rid of them and we move them out of our head, we can't just leave it empty. We fill it with all kinds of things. Three weeks ago, I challenged you, listen to worship music throughout the week. Look at scripture throughout the week. Memorize the Bible. King David in the Old Testament said, I've hidden your word inside my heart that I may not sin against you. So when he memorized the word of God, it literally had the outcome of him not sinning against God in certain ways. Same thing's true for you as well. There's nothing special about him that's not special about you. And so we end here in Philippians 4, 8. He says this, finally, brothers, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, these are the things you focus your mind on. These are the things that you put in your head. Why? Because these things are the things that will make you more like God. And this can be anything, you guys. This can be what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy about your husband or your wife. Think about those things. This can be what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy about your work. This can be your study, what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. We focus our minds and hearts on these things. And when we do that, you immediately begin seeing change in your attitude in your heart. Why? Because things are happening up here. You're changing your past. We don't have to walk broken with the old tapes forever. 
I cut those wires. There's nothing special about me. You 100% can do that. The Lord is with you in it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we realize that this, there, there's a lot of work ahead. And for us, this is not an overnight transformation, but this is part of discipleship, that we believe the right things about ourselves. We start with understanding that before you, God, we are, we're a delight to you. We are pleasing to you, God. And we are holy in your sight because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, if we start from there and all the good and merciful things that you have done for us, God, we trust that whatever path you have for our life, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be better than the one we would choose for ourselves. So be with us in our decision-making. Be with us now in the way that we think because we want to think more healthy. We don't want to walk around with broken programming anymore. To that end, God, we ask that your spirit would begin that process because you told us, God, that when you leave the spirit, he will bring us into all truth. And so we ask, God, that you would remind us and show us what true, what is false in us and what is true about us so that we can start the work that we'll spend the rest of our lives doing, God, being more and more just like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.